To the Voices of Freedom podcast. My name is Dennis Gill, and I will be your host today. Uh, if you are a returning listener, I appreciate you sticking with us and coming back. Uh, your support uh, is very, very much appreciated. If you are new to the podcast, welcome. Uh, I hope that you will return and come back uh, to listen to, to other uh, podcast episodes, both past and uh, future. And again, I thank you for your support. Um, if you'd like to learn more about what we are doing here at the Voices of Freedom or at the Americans in Wartime Experience, you could visit our website at www.americansinwartime.org. Once there, you can peruse our uh, tank collection. You can take a look at our interviews that we have conducted over the last uh, 11 years now. We have over 500 interviews online currently. Uh, we've conducted a roughly about 625 interviews at the time of this recording. Once you're on the website, you can also donate to the project. We'd appreciate uh, any support that you could give us monetarily. Uh, we are a 501c3, so everything that we do uh, is nonprofit and, and, and relies on donations from people like you. So if you like these interviews, if you think that what we are doing is important, uh, and I hope you do, because recording these stories of the wartime veterans is something that uh, needs to be done and it needs to be preserved for future generations. And what we are trying to do here is to honor these veterans uh, with uh, by, by recording their stories and preserving them for future generations. We're trying to educate those future generations with these interviews, with the words of the men and women who are actually there, and we are trying to inspire those future generations as well. So as we sit here for this recording, it is June of 2022, and this month we are remembering, we are honoring, we are dedicating uh, our time to the veterans uh, that made that landfall that were part of the invasion uh, known as D-Day on 6 June 1944. And today's interview is with Michael Hubiak. Michael was there that day. As part of the first wave, he was with the 1st Division, uh, United States Army, G Company. Uh, and he was, a, a, he was an assistant mortar uh, gunner uh, on a 60-millimeter mortar. And he was part, again, of, of the first wave uh, of Operation Overlord. Uh, again, more uh, recognizable as uh, the D-Day invasion. Um, he talks about uh, making the landing that day. He talks about getting wounded. He was uh, hit by shrapnel from German mortar rounds that hit close to his location. And he was wounded in the head, the arm, and the uh, the hand, uh, and he was he had to be medevaced off the beach by by Navy medics and transported back to uh, England, where he was uh, where he will receive care. Um, we watch these stories. Um, if you've ever seen Saving Private Ryan, and I know a lot of you have. That first half hour of that movie um, does, I think, a pretty good job of trying to convey what it was like uh, for those for those men to make that landing at, on uh, on uh, uh, at Normandy. 
the best they can anyway. It's hard, it's hard to do that in a movie, I know. There's been plenty of documentaries and books written about it. Um, but Michael was actually there that day. He has uh, an eyewitness, uh, or he was an eyewitness to history. So he, he is a very, um, uh, his memory was very good uh, of what occurred that day. He's a very compelling story um, of what uh, occurred that day because he was there. He didn't watch some movie. He didn't read a book. He didn't watch a documentary. He was actually there. He lived it. Um, so without further ado, uh, I'd like to give you the interview with Michael Hubiak. Uh, again, he was part of First Division G Company, and he was part of the first wave to hit the beach at Normandy on 6 June 19. 19- 44. This is Greg Pass with the Americans in Wartime Museum. Today's date is June the 6th, 2015, and I'm conducting an interview with Michael Hubiak at the Mid-Atlantic Air Museum in Pennsylvania. Sir, would you please give us your full name, when you were born, and where you were born? Michael Hubiak, born 4 Phillips Street, Buttonwood, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. And what war did you participate in? World War II. Do you have any other military veterans in your family? Yeah. I had a cousin that lived with us. He's dead now. He was in the artillery. And I had a brother younger than me that was in the infantry. I think he was in the 8th Infantry Division. That's all. <clears throat> and do you remember where you were when you heard about the attack on Pearl Harbor? Yeah, I was working in the Betsy Ross restaurant on Public Square in Wilkesboro. And what did, how did it make you feel when you heard about the Japanese attack? Yeah, nothing much. Everybody was just... Wondering what happened, what happened, that's all. And how did you end up um, um, entering into military service? No, I didn't join up. I, I was drafted. But I was in high school then yet. And uh, <clears throat> that was, I think it was on a, a Sunday. And uh, I was working till 11 o'clock, I think, at night or 10 o'clock. On the soda, behind the soda fountain. So then I was a still stu- a student in my 12th year in high school. And uh, I came home from work. And the next day I went to school. I was in high student in high school. So then I went to school. And nothing continued until they drafted me. I was drafted, and uh, <coughs> we, uh, but I was in high school yet, and they took me out. Of, I, I, I graduated in June of '42. From high school, and I was 
drafted on June I don't know was it was September or something or somewhere around there I was drafted into the army I think it was on my discharge paper it's in there and um what what um what was your military occupational specialty well, I had to go to New Cumberland, where all the draftees go when in Pennsylvania at that time. I was there a couple of days. Most of it was all the students that graduated with, uh, from high school with me that was in there because it was the first 18-year-old draft. So we come in there, and then got, we got measured up and got clothed up, dressed up and everything. And all of a sudden they said, we're going out. We got in the train and it loaded up. Oh, it was a long train. We ended up down in Camp Wheeler, Georgia. We're down there in basic training for 13 weeks. After 13 weeks of training, we were loaded up on a train again. And we brought up to Pennsylvania, Camp Shenango, right, or I think it was near Erie, Pennsylvania. I don't know, it was a, for overnight or something. Then from there we was transferred down to Newport, Newport News, Camp, uh, what camp was that? I think it was, it was a Camp Marshal Leody or Camp Patrick Henry. Camp Patrick Henry was down there. Was just a swamp was built with uh, uh, plywood and tar paper around it in the swamp area. I don't know. We were there for a couple of days. Then we were shipped out. I think it was in Norfolk. We got out of Nor the camp and went to Norfolk. And then we went on the USS Mariposa. From there we went from West Virginia, from Virginia to Casablanca in Africa. Took us eight days to get across the ocean zigzagging back and forth and ended up in Casablanca ended up in the French Warren or French Foreign Legion camp. I think we slept there for two days. Then we were put on a train and we went up, I think we went up like through French Morocco, Spanish Morocco, up to uh, near the Mediterranean Ocean into uh, Oran and then Algiers. Algiers or and I was assigned to a, a, a camp, a replacement camp. I don't know how long we just had to sleep in pup tents on the ground. Then the next thing you know, we were back on the train and getting assigned to another camp out in the desert.
and I was assigned to the, I think it was the 1st Infantry Division. From there we went up to uh, near the Mediterranean Sea, I, I think that was in Oran. Uh, we come up there and uh, they already ended up the war in Africa and we were shipped they went and made the invasion of Sicily and we went in as replacements on the landing craft into Sicily by the time we got there the war in Sicily was over and we were brought back a camp just outside of a orange, orange grove or a lemon grove it was and uh, we laid out on the ground and slept overnight there and then I don't know we stayed there for a day or two we were loaded in trucks and taken to I think it was Palermo, Sicily and from Palermo, Sicily we loaded up on a boat that was coming, an Indian boat coming from India to England. It had uh, English officers and Indian sailors. And we come all the way over to, well, I think it was in the, one, in the night, we had to get on a on the boat and we went through, through the Rock of Gibraltar and up the Atlantic Ocean right into England. And then they distributed to Quonset huts where we were stationed and, and until we got decided what they decided they were going to do. That's all I could remember there. Then we went to uh, basic training. We went through it. We were doing uh, work and going up into... Uh, Boats, landing craft, go out in the Mediterranean Sea, make a practice run into division, uh, invasion into England. Then they took us out to another one. Oh, what was that? Oh, I forget what bivouac area, and we had to do it from the other side of England, like from the Atlantic side. We had to do the the invasion there, a practice invasion. I don't know how long it lasted, but then we got shipped back to the camp down in, in uh, southern England. We got there, and they loaded us up on a boat, and we went out in the Mediterranean Sea, and that's when we found out that, or oh, in between that, we had to go out and stand inspection out in the field. Winston Churchill come down and inspect us one day. Montgomery come down and inspect us one day. General Eisenhower come down and inspected us one day. General Patton come down and inspected generals. So everybody knew, being that they were all coming around, that something was coming up. So they took us back to the camp, and we were there Oh, I don't know how long, a couple of days. And then they loaded us up in the trucks, and we come down Weymouth. 
I think it was Weymouth in England. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Voices of Freedom podcast. The Voices of Freedom is a division of the Americans in Wartime Experience, a 501c3 dedicated to honoring, educating, and inspiring. The mission of the Voices of Freedom is to record and preserve the wartime oral histories of Americans, both civilian and military. If you'd like to learn more or to donate to our project, please visit our website at www.americansinwartime.org. We loaded up on the, already we were getting loaded up on the, on the boat. A big, a big, pretty big transportation bus, bus, truck, our ship. And we pulled out in the ocean. And we were waiting for orders. And then finally when they come out, we found out we were going to make the invasion of France. So we had to go out on the ca- on the uh, English Channel, and the first thing you know, it was in the oh, in the morning. I think it was after four o'clock. They start loading us down from the ship on these rope ladders into the landing craft. It was dark, so we didn't know it. So we going around, and then got the landing craft. We start going around in circles. And it started getting light already. And that's when you could see how many other ships were in the channel all over, the English Channel. And other big transports were unloading troops. They were climbing down in there. And we were riding around. It was dark. But as the weather started clearing up, we could see the haze on the ocean lifting up. And we could see the beach. It was a beautiful beach. Obstacles in it, but the beach was pretty long. We graduate. We graduated. We, graduated. we invaded at. Uh, it was high tide. No, it wasn't. It was low tide. It was low tide because there was a lot of beach to run down. So they they straightened they straightened all the landing craft together instead of going around and around until they get a range. They straightened them all out, and that's when we went in to make the invasion on the beach. We jumped past the obstacles that was in the beach, and we ran up the beach. There was no fire until we got farther up as the, on the beach. We got farther up on the beach. Already the Germans start machine gun shooting down on us. It was The beach got smaller, and we were up against... On the beach, if you know along the ocean, it's the, the beach is sandy and then it's gravel. And we had to lay in back of that gravel while the Germans were uh, shooting at us with uh, artillery. We had it was artillery and machine guns. The Germans were shooting with machine guns at us and more troops started coming. The, the tide come up. I was laying in the tide against the gravel with my legs in the water and my head was on the gravel. The sergeant said, Holland, set up the mortar. I was on a 60 millimeter mortar. I had no training on the mortar, but I had a, a what the hell was it? I was on a 60 millimeter mortar and 
I was made a assistant gunner. And my sergeant was Sergeant Biggis. So we got into action. We started firing. I know I had a pack of 60 millimeter mortars, shells. I used them up and I got another pack from the ammunition carrier and I start firing when the artillery hit, hit our area. I know it, the gunner was laid over that side, I laid over here, and the sergeant was up in front of us, higher on the gravel, so he was directing the fire. So the, and he directed the fire, we went up, and the artillery hit us and knocked us out. Everybody was knocked. I was wounded. The gunner was wounded, the sergeant was wounded, the ammunition carriers were wounded as far as I could see, and uh, uh, the artillery, when it hit us, that's when we all got hurt. I was laying over on my side, I was bleeding, I took my helmet, I put it under my head, I looked, I had blood coming in the helmet. So they started hollering, medic, medic, medic. The medic come over, he bandaged up. My, put my hand in the man, uh, in the swing, bandage it up, put a bandage on my head, and put a bandage across my rear on the back because the shrapnel ripped open my, right above my ear, my ear, my rear. What the hell am I talking about? I've been telling this story right along, so that's why I'm getting tongue tight. And, and uh, he put a bandage on me, and he said, later the medic will come and pick you up. So I lay there for a while, and I started bleeding again, and I started hollering medic, and he'd come in and put another bandage on me. He said, the Navy medic is going to come and pick you up. So the Navy medic come up after, he picked me up and carried me out with a sailor out to the uh, big ship out in the, uh, out in the channel. When he, and they lifted me up with a crane and put me on the ship and they put, took me down, the sailor took me down and changed my bandages. And that was it. The next day, the ship went back to England with all the men that they could put on wounded over there. And that's when I was, I think I was in, put in Taunton, England, and they started bandaging me up and cleaning me up. They put a bandage on my head I still got a little shrapnel in it, and they put a bandage on my arm. I lost my radial nerve, and my hand was like a flipper down on it. And I was laying there, and I think I laid there was a two months. And they started telling me that they were sewing me up, but every time they sewed me up, instead of them letting me lay there, they tried to make me sit up and the stitches would pull apart. So then, when I got to Taunton, England, that's when they uh, sewed me up there and they let me lay there. I was a couple weeks. And then it, it started healing up on me, but then they told me, they said, one doctor said, you're going to go back up on the front lines. And another doctor said, nope, you lost a radial nerve in your arm. He said, you're going to go back to the States. So I just lay there, 
and then they come in and told me a couple days later something's wrong you're bleeding you're you're an awful lot of water is coming into the bandages from my wound so he said what could they say they figured well you must have, it must have penetrated your bladder and that's where you were getting water into my uh, bandages so they shipped me back to to Taunton, England then they went up oh we went up to Scotland I'm going back to the States they told me went up to Scotland Scotland, Ireland, or was it just Scotland, and then up to uh, Iceland, Greenland, Newfoundland, then to LaGuardia Airport in New York, and from there I was shipped down to White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia, the Greenbrier Hotel was turned into a hospital. So they, they took me right up and put me in there, and they said, "No, it's your bladder's healing up now." He said, "But you're going to go back to the well. I was, you're going going back to the states." So I, I laid there for a while down in West Virginia, and then he told me, "You're getting discharged." So that was it. Wow. Um Let's talk about, you mentioned that you were with the 1st the, uh, Infantry Division. Yeah. You were with the 16th Infantry Regiment? 16th Regiment. 16th Infantry. And um, what what, what um, company were you in? G Company. G Company of the 16th Infantry. And uh, what wave were you at Omaha Beach? The first wave. We went in the first wave. Nothing there but a clear beach. And the men that you mentioned, when you were hit with the artillery, the men that you were with you, did, what did they live? I I don't know what happened. I know Sergeant Biggest. He was hit in the back. He was laying out up in front of me on the gravel pile, and I could see that he was bleeding on his back. It was bleeding, and the gunner was laying over there. I didn't remember what happened to him or the ammunition carriers because then the Navy picked me up and took me back out to the ocean. And um, you were a rifleman? Was that your your? No, I was a, a assistant um, a, a, a gunner on a 60 millimeter mortar. And can you describe your wounds? You mentioned that you were hit in the back of the head. And, yeah. And, um, I got a few shrapnel still on my head. They're small. But they cut some out, and the other ones, they said, it's no use even cutting it because it is so small. So it's still I still have a little bit of shrapnel in my head. And what, So when you got off the boat, the Higgins, I assume you landed on a Higgins boat? The, land, the landing craft was yeah, the Higgins yeah, boat? That, well, yeah, yeah. Um, you weren't taking any fire when the ramp went down? No. So it wasn't until you got off into the beach a good Yeah, distance. until we ran up past the beach, up past the obstacles, because the beach was long and it was a low tide, so they were, when the, uh, the obstacles weren't in the water yet. But after I got hit and I'm laying there, then I'm, I see all of the 
next wave's coming up and they're getting hung up on the obstacles. The uh, water was, high tide was hitting my legs. My legs were getting wet until the, na- and the sailors come up and pick me up. And how, um, how old were you at the time? Nineteen. It's hard for somebody like myself to, to comprehend what it's like to be at a battle as violent as Omaha Beach, especially at the age of 19. What, what's going through your head as this, this is unfolding around you? I didn't think nothing. I don't remember thinking nothing. The only thing is I just laid there. And the, the sergeant, I started moaning and crying, and the sergeant said, shut up, it ain't going to help you. So I kept quiet until they lifted me up and took me out on the ocean. And then brought me back. Uh, I don't know where we shipped, landed someplace in England, and then they put me on the ambulance and went up to the hospital. I, I think it was Taunton, England. They had a general hospital there. What? what and right, I, I laid there about three months in England. Right before the invasion, when you were briefed about Omaha Beach, what what was your understanding? Did you think that there would be a lot of Resistance, or what were you briefed about as far as the nothing? They didn't tell. I don't remember them telling us nothing. They didn't even tell us where what beach we were going on. Nothing. The sergeant knew, and and I had a, a captain was from Texas. What the hell was his name? He he was a. He was a captain, and he, in the office, to get a promotion, he had to go and take a line company, be and be a captain of the line company. That's the way I understood it when I was in the hospital. And they were saying, so they they promoted him to a major. No, he got promoted later on. He was in a he was a captain until after I was wounded because he after I was wounded he they got a, they got a orders and they moved up already the uh, the company next to us up to the right no to the left got an opening and they started going up onto the French uh, land now there were no more on the beach they started going up in the meantime, more troops were coming in and coming in and coming in. You, you could, you, you look back, you threw a stone, you're going to hit somebody. There was so much, they couldn't get it up. But this outfit, they got an opening and they started going up. And that, that's when they started going up on the front lines. Dawson, captain Dawson was the captain of the company. And I understood that after that, they promoted him to a major. Joe Dawson, yeah, that was his name. Yeah. How long were you on the beach before you were hit? Not very long. Not very long. No. Can you describe what it sounded like? The sound? I thought I was an ant pressing into the gravel into, to, to get away from the bomb because the concussion would lift you. Then when the artillery was uh, busting around you, the concussion would lift in me. 
of the of the men that were in your unit, do you know how many of them didn't make it? No, because I never never came in contact with them after that. I was brought back to England, shipped on a on a C forty seven up to Iceland, Greenland, Newfoundland, down into New York, and and on. In the C-47 down into West Virginia, or that, I guess that's, yeah, I guess it was West Virginia, Green, Green, what the hell was it? Green, Green Buyer. I, I knew they played a lot of golf there, and now they're opened up again, you know. That's all I could tell you that I can remember. When you were approaching the Normandy coastline, can you describe what the sea looked like with the amount of, amount of ships that were involved with this? Beautiful. With like a bunch of mosquitoes out there. They were, they're all over the water. Big ships and small ships, every kind. And a Navy, what the hell would I say? As much as I know about the Navy, it was a mid-sized Navy uh gunboat and they come up and they went in front of us and we were coming from the beach or to the beach they come in front of us and they opened up with naval guns but they overshot the targets they pulled a, they pulled it up in front and they were going shooting all along the target but they were over shooting the German pillboxes and the Germans Right after they went, the Germans opened up again with their artillery. They they went right over. Yeah. What about the Army Air Corps? How much support did you have from the Army Air Corps dropping their bombs? No, they went too far in. They were going too far in, uh, and uh, they didn't help us. Uh, not that day when I first got it. When I first got here. When I sit here and talk about it, it was hell, but hey, what you going to do? Hey, all the other GIs were doing it. I had to do what they do. That's all. At the time, did you realize the historic significance of the battle you were in? No. No, I didn't. I didn't think nothing of it. I just listened to what the sergeant was preaching, but after he got hit, I had no control over what the Army did with me. That's what I had to do. can't say I remember any. I know I come home. That's the first furlough or pass I ever had in the Army. None from when I completed my basic training. No, sir. When I completed my basic training, I got on a boat, and right there I went to Casablanca. Nothing. Like now, they take them in, they put them in for 15 weeks, and then they send them home for a furlough. Not then. They, I guess they needed them, Dad. But I don't see where they had all those divisions. I'm not a military man, but I don't know. 
they were all around the country. Maybe they all organized them after. But they, they had to take the kids that just come in and take them in and put them on the front lines, you know? It wasn't that they, they had trained soldiers. I wouldn't say I was a trained soldier, shit. I, I, I never fired a gun in my life. When I was a kid, I, uh, my father was building a fence and he put pipes for poles in them. And the neighbor gave me a cork, cork gun. You ever get one of them guns that drive like a rifle? You pump it like that and it shoots a cork out, makes a lot of noise, but don't do no damage. I go, oh boy, I went, Pop, I said, look at here, I got a gun, I got a gun. And my father said to me in Polish, show me, show me. I sure, I sure I got, he took it like that, put it in that fence pole, put cement on top of, that's your gun, no more. No, he said, I don't want no guns in my house, and that's all he said. You were, um, in the, you mentioned that, um, you landed in Sicily. Yeah. But, the, but it was toward the end of the operation. There. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, uh, did you have a lot of, um, soldiers that were in your unit that had combat experience elsewhere, such as Africa or, um... No, just the rest of the, the company, the rest of, our, of the company. They come back from the front lines from Mount Etna in Sicily. That's where it, it ended, and they come back. So that's where they come back, and they had a, they started a, a put us a bivouac in in a, a lemon grove, and they put me in there and assigned me to to the watcher call. And I, I'm looking, I'm laying there with my pack on, and I see the lemons. I grabbed a lemon from up there. And I said, that's the first time I ever ate a lemon. Yeah. Oh, Jesus Christ. When you're in England before the invasion, um, what were your living conditions there? Were you with an English family or were you at a camp? We were in a Quonset. I get that Quonset huts. That's them black ones like that. That's where they had, I think, two companies was there two companies in this uh, Quonset huts, well, four Quonset huts, and then they, near yet another town, they s split them up to over there. Our company was in this camp, and, and E Company was in another camp, uh, F Company, F Company and G Company were together. Our company and F Company were together. I know because they had a, a, a second lieutenant from the Air Force. He wanted out, so they put took him from the Air Force and they give him a, a, a lieutenant's rating in the, the front line troops. And I, lieutenant Blue, that was his name, Lieutenant Blue. Yeah. How did you communicate with your family? You write them a letter, but I don't know when they'd get it, you know. You, 
you were in the you were in one of the most important battles of the Second World War. Yeah. When you got home, um, did you at that point did you realize the significance of what you did? No. Mm-mm. Because the war was still going on, and nobody knew what was going to happen. You know what I mean? They they started to get an awful lot of troops. They come over later on. They used to go to high school with me, some of them kids, and they were assigned, and they start. That's when they said the hedgerows. When they got stuck in back of the hedgerows, they were just stuck there. That's all. They couldn't move. The Germans were on the other side of the hedgerow. These guys were on this side. Americans were on this side of the hedgerows, and a lot of them got killed up there because the Germans were had everything ready in the hedgerows, you know. But nothing, nothing that I knew of much. Can, can you describe when you were on the Higgins boat? What type of equipment did, were you personally carrying at that time? I had my my pack on my back and the plate from the sixty millimeter mortar and the ammunition the gunner he carried a gun it was like a tube you know so and he went up so far and then then Sergeant uh, uh, call said, set the gun up. So I, he threw the uh, plate down, and I put the gun right in it, and then opened it up, and he put the sights on it, because he carried the sights in a, in a leather pack in here. And he started putting it on, and he started zeroing in, and then the Sergeant Bigger said, you better fire. So he gave him the, the number on it, and I set it over there, and he started firing. That's all. But it was no farther than that that I got. Was, were you, was there any cover at all for you, or were you just out there in the open on the beach? Yep, out in the open. You know, please. Nothing. How much small arms fire were you taking? Not too much. Not too much. The machine guns were firing, but you, you lay down and you miss, they miss you. But when, they, when your lieutenant starts hollering, we're up and going, oh... So I, I know now uh, Joe Dawson was in back of me uh, where I was firing the mortar on the, on the beach. And then when they started hollering from over in the other company, they said, come on over this way because we got an opening. So then all the ones that wasn't hurt, they started following over that way. But the ones that was wounded, they just stayed right here. But they were more troops coming in and coming in and coming in. That you couldn't miss nothing. They were like mosquitoes, all the bunch. You, could you see from your vantage point clearly where the pillboxes were? No, they were up on the hill. They were up on, up on the hill, and it was, they were opening. They had machine guns right in there, and they were firing like hell. I think right in front of the the gravels was like a little bit of a swamp in there. And, and I don't know why our sergeant didn't tell us to run through it, but
but I think someone tried to run through it, and he, um, he got in a mine hit him, and he got killed in the swamp. So then nobody else would go there. They tried to go around it. What's the best way you could describe the battle scene? You said hell earlier. Is there any other words that you can use to help somebody understand what it was like to be on that beach? Nope. The only thing I could tell you is that we had some older sergeant, very, very good sergeants. And uh, they kept us in, in what you call, uh, until it was dark. Then they'd move around, try to find a way to get up off the gravel. Yeah, they were. But them, them sergeants, they were, they, they were better than the lieutenants leading the soldiers, you know. Yeah. Because them lieutenants, there was, there was a big turnover of, of second lieutenants. There was a big turnover. Yeah. Today is the anniversary of D-Day. Yeah. Do you, every anniversary, do you have a lot of memories that come back to you on the anniversary? No. No, it's only that I come up here and start talking to you and with my son. We start talking to the other guys out here that, that I figured it. But if I would have been home, I'd have been doing something in my garden or something, you know. Yeah. You know, um, guys like most of the people that are here today think of you generally as a hero. I know. Um, how, how do you react to that? No, I don't think I'm a hero. I think I was just doing what the sergeants and the, and the Wachakaw was telling us to do. That's how I could tell them. They, they were running the show, the sergeants. I bumped into a guy after a while from down in North, North Carolina. His father used to have a, a car salesmanship down there. And he, he starts telling me, I bumped into him already in, in a hospital in West Virginia, and, uh, and he started telling me, he said, you know, I got hit going up by the hedgerows, he said. He said, and Sergeant Gobar, Sergeant Gobar was a sergeant from Johnstown, Pennsylvania. He said, he was my sergeant. He said, when he seen me get hit, he pulled me off the hedges and he laid me on the ground around the hedges and covered me up. And he said to me, he said, now you just stay here till it gets dark. I'll come and bring you, I'll come and take you back. And he said, yeah. He said, Sergeant Gobar, come. Carried me right through in the dark, right back to American lines. Now, I never knew what happened to Gobar. Gobar was a, was a, uh, second, no, he was a sergeant, a, a buck sergeant. And he said, he, he didn't give a, bu a, a bullshit about the war. 
he didn't give a shit about nothing. When we were in town, I was, he'd go and get drunk every time. He'd get drunk, and they'd take him home, back to the barracks, and he'd sleep it off. But when you come, when they come under action, he knew what to do. He was, he was in his carriage, no sir. And he wasn't, he wasn't a big man, just a small, thin, thin man, but he led the troops. He did. I often wondered, I said, I, I often wondered, I wanted to go, to come over to France to see, I didn't know that all of my sergeant, biggest, the gunners, the ammunition carrier, they all got, got hit. I don't think so. I don't remember. What? They could, I never know. I never come in contact with any of them no more. How would you describe your homecoming? Not much. Not much. Not much at all. I, I come home. The war was still on. Because a World War II ended about two weeks after I got my military discharge. And and my mother didn't have nothing about it because she lost she lost three son, brothers in the the German army in the First World War. She she always used to cry and say they took two of my brothers her brothers and and one was saying to his father and he said don't worry dad he said. I'm going because I'm. Go they they were going to constipate constipate. No, conscript his horses. They were taking the horses to use in the first world war in the army. And he said, "I'll go with the horses, and when the war ends, I'll bring the horses home." But it never happened. They went into to Hungary or someplace over there, and she he he got killed, and they took the horses, and that was the end of him. I know she used to cry all the time. He was the youngest brother. Mm -hmm. How do you think that your experience during the war affected your life? Well, it made me a little older to, to, to know what's going on in the world. I knew I'd come home, and I didn't know what the hell to do with myself already. I had a contraption put on my hand with wires and rubber bands, that it, and I was supposed to exercise it like I'd pull it down, and the rubber bands would pull it up until I get the, the nerves working in my hand, you know? And then I used to go up to the restaurant where I worked behind the soda fountain, and there was a Two doors away was a jewelry store, and I think they took a liking to me, the old Jewish man that run it. And he he come in and he said to me, he said, Mike, what are you doing? What are you going to do now? I said, I don't know what to do. I said, I don't know what I do. what could I do. He said, go to school to be a watch repair man. And I said, you think I could do it with my hand the way it is? He said, if you could hold a quarter in between your two fingers, you could do it. He said, I'll get you an application when the bull of a watchmaker, bull of a watch uh, salesman comes in. 
I'll get you the papers, you fill them out and send them in. And that's when I got accepted into the Boulder Watch Company to fix watches. They had a school out in New York, and you had to be a disabled veteran to get in it. This video will be sent to the Library of Congress. It will? Yes, it will. Yeah. And it should be kept there for hundreds and hundreds of years. If one of your great-great-great-great-grandchildren saw the video, what would you want them to know about your service? I don't know how they're going to uh, form their opinion. Whether they form their opinion that they like their parents or, or what, you know? All depends on what the, how, it, uh, how the world is turning in the, in the future. That's the only thing I could figure. Yeah, I worked for 20 years fixing watches. I knew that no trouble. Then the, 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 the uh, owner of the, of the jewelry store closed down, so I was out of work. I went up on a 5220 club. You get for uh, $20 for 52 weeks. And then I go cut the, collect the 20 uh, the, the $52 or no, $20 for 52 weeks and that's how I was hanging around the VFW and that and then I found out that the other guys it, like now they're saying oh you get shell shocked they get nervous it's not it's something that the, that you get in from the battle all around you that you get strung up tight and that's what happened them guys they get strung up tight and they'd go up to vets and they'd sit there drinking until they get shined all up and here it was 11 o'clock at night the bartender wants to close the club the club so you'd get out and they'd walk across the street and that was the main highway and it, one or two of them got killed and I figured oh that's what it was and now they say, oh, that's shell shock, or that's uh, other fancy words they use for it. But I don't know what it, I don't think so, that so many guys are coming from uh, Afghanistan and Iraq and that, and they're saying, tension, tension. I don't think so. I, I'm not a medical man, but that's the way I feel it. I figured if them guys would just drink a few and go home and go to bed, and it would wear off over the years. You know, you, you'd wear it off and you'd get back to normal. But if you're going to be going and drinking all the time, you, you'll never get normal. Yeah. If a young man came to you today and asked you for your advice about entering into the Army, what would you tell him? I would tell him not to go. I would tell him not to go. I had a neighbor... And I, and I agree with you, but let me tell you, I agree with it. He got out of high school, and I said to him, where are you going to go? You want to go to college? You want to go to school? No, he said, I'm going in the military. His father wasn't in the military. His grandfather wasn't in the military, but he wanted to go. So he went in the military. He come home. I said, well, how'd you do, Glenn? Good, he said. Mike, he said, I volunteered for the paratroopers. 
He said, I loved it. I said, well, did they send you over to Afghanistan or Iraq? No. He said, they sent me to Germany. There's no war in Germany. He said, and we had a practice jumping out of an airplane in Germany. He served a sermon there, and he come out, and he's home. Yeah, you don't know what's going to be. No. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about about your uh, time in the army? No, no, not that I could think of. But you know, with that, it is when you think about it. You see, some people they go in the army; they're a bunch of miserable bastards, and some of them. I could say they're more intelligent and they're nice. Do you get to be buddy with them? You have it good. That's all I could tell you. Yeah. Well, on behalf of the Americans in Wartime Museum and Personally, I cannot thank you enough for coming here and telling us this story. I can tell you this is probably one of the most fascinating stories we've heard. Yeah. Um, your service, I can't thank you enough for it. It's been an honor to meet you. Yeah. Well, you people are nice. I didn't know what it was all about, but I would tell it to you like I'd tell it to anybody else on the street. That's all. Thank you so much. Okay. It's kind of honor. Right. I hope you enjoyed this interview. If you'd like to find out more about the Voices of Freedom Project and the Americans in Wartime Experience, or if you'd like to donate, please visit our website at www.americansinwartime.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast.